before we pray and get into it, I just want to give a little bit of background on 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 how I got to these to these. I call them the top ten ministry mistakes, or the top ten uh, mistakes that many ministries make that are uncommonly understood or uncommonly known. We have we have many mistakes or issues or something. You know that that people make that we all know that are wrong, right? A lack of faith is one of the top would be one of the top ten mistakes, but but everybody understands that a lack of faith is a problem, right? So so those are the ones that we're not going to be talking about so much because they're clear. They're, I don't we don't want to rehash everything we already know. So 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 get ready for some some heated discussion about some difficult challenges okay difficult issues that um that that i believe are some of the major challenges that are that are not allowing us to progress as fast as god would have us to progress and and our humanity often lies in the in the way for god to really take this message you know to the whole world and we and we're just lagging behind because of certain certain paradigms, certain things that we believe that that don't allow us to actually move forward. So, so we're going to look at some of these things, especially in a startup phase, but also in general, in ministry in general, it it, it applies to to um, to any circumstance really. So, uh, so let's just start with a word of prayer and we can and we can allow the Holy Spirit to instruct us this morning. So let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, thank you so much that you give us this time to to really think about how to do ministry in in uh, in our modern context in which we live and applying all the principles that you've taught us throughout the ages and especially throughout the Adventist history, and that we can learn from those things and really implement these things um, in, in, into our 21st century context. Lord, help us to, to um, really focus on learning from the Holy Spirit, not, not falling in love with our own ideas, but really falling in love with your ideas and with your plans uh, for our lives and for ministry in general. And... Uh, Help us to not make these mistakes that um, that other people and we ourselves have made in the past. Um, to, for us not to be an obstacle in the work, but actually be a blessing in the work. And that's all of our desire. And so therefore, we thank you that, that you will participate uh, and uh, as you have promised. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so just a little bit of background for... Whoever doesn't know me as well, some some know me very well here. But um, um, I I used to be actually when I was 18, I got the Lord gave me uh, a call. Finally, I mean, the call has been there from you know since birth, but I didn't get it. I didn't realize it until I was 18, and then I realized, man, I do not want to do anything else except for work for God for the rest of my life. That was the bottom line. And so that 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 change really set the sail for me in what I was going to be doing. And so 
from there, long story short, I, um, I was called to go help start a ministry in Honduras, uh, Vida Internacional, where Joseph is working right now. And, um, and so I was there for about three, four years. And um, that was a tremendous experience for me. I was 19, 20 years old, and I had no idea what I was doing. And, and here we had to do legal papers and we had to figure out, you know, project plans and fundraising and figure out how to do business and how to do, how to start a, a, a program, a school, you know, a mission school and how to start a church. I had never started a church. And then, and then starting an elementary school and all these other things, right? And, and, and all of this just based on, on no experience, no idea how to do anything. And so you can imagine how many mistakes <laughs> we made, I made, you know. And, um, and so thankfully, the Lord allowed, uh, you know, the Lord's so merciful and He's so gracious and He helps us even through all these things, you know, even with our ignorance, He just, he just tries to figure out how to bless anyway, right? That's how God is. And, and, so, and so He allowed OCI, you know OCI, Outpost Centers International, the, the network of ministries all around the world. And so these leaders, they would come and visit us and give us some really good count, you know, counsel. It's like, hey, you shouldn't do this or you should do. And so, and so it helped us eliminate some of the challenges and some of the, some of the mistakes that we were about to make or were making. And so we could rectify, you know, the Lord is, the Lord has really, Helped and now thank God, it's uh, still a thriving ministry, and I think it's thriving much more now than when I was there. I don't know if that has anything to do with me not being there. <laughs> it's very, it's very possible. <laughs> but but uh, th- this is this is um, this is the reality, right? We go, we we are called to be missionaries for God to teach us, right, and for God to actually reach our souls. And so that's my, that's really my experience down in, in Honduras. So from there, um, I was called to come up to Wildwood and spend about almost four years here, um, leading the, the, the college here. And, and that was a lot of fun. I met a lot of great people and we had some, some really cool experiences developing the online school. You know, where now are, I think, I think about, was it five, about 500, four or 500 people are being trained right now in the, in the online school. Um, as missionaries, you took the course, right? Uh, so, so that's, a, that's a big, big blessing. That was really a big blessing for us to have that experience, you know. And then also to develop the business course, the, the ministry management course, um, where many of the things that, Many of the things that I wish I had had in starting the project in Honduras, we put into the course in, in this ministry management course so that other people wouldn't do those same mistakes that we made. And so, and so just the bare essentials, right? It's a one-year intensive course um, here at Wildwood. So, so, so that was really, that's kind of the, the background. And then, you know, I got married, thankfully. Great. Praise the Lord. Thanks to, really, to Wildwood for, for bringing us together. We were working together in Honduras, actually. And then seven years later, 
you know, it hit me, right? <laughs> With the Lord, you know. So, so I'm grateful for that. And she also has, um, she actually studied marketing and international business. And so, so that really helps in, the, in, in a lot of the things that we're doing now. Now we went, when we left Wildwood, we went back to Europe and we started a, an, an incubator, actually an incubator for businesses, um, for Adventists that want to start their own businesses or their own ministry, but from a pro, as a profitable ministry. Okay, a profitable that is like a restaurant or a health food store or anything, right? We we helped one guy start his own um, his own app app development company. So it's an IT company, and they do apps for ministries, right? Actually, for for anybody, but but his the guy is a he, he's an IT freak, you know, these guys. Uh, but but he's really a missionary. He's worked as a missionary before, and so he wants to help many ministries get into the 21st century and get them get them up to into apps and having these kind of things. And he does websites as well. And so we get some experience doing this and a smoothie bar. We started as helped incubate. You know, an incubator. You know how when a child is just born. You, you know, it's early, you know, so you put him in an incubator and make sure that it gets everything that it needs and so forth until it's, until it's mature enough so that it can, it can live on its own, right? And so that's really, it's kind of, it's a business incubator. So people come, we give them their legal structure. We have some, some, it's not just me. It's, we're working with a number of people that are, that, we have lawyers connected to it and accountants and different things. So, so we actually just do even the accounting for them if they need that. We have the legal structure already set up for them. And so within about three weeks, we just help them launch, develop the business model and then launch it, bring it into the market um, with them. So that's been very exciting. And we've learned a lot of things on what to do and what not to do in terms of starting a ministry or starting a company. Now, the idea is that these ministries are all ministry, they're centers of influence, but at the same time, they're also profitable so that people can live off of it and continue doing ministry for the rest of their lives, right? That's the, that's the, whole, that's the whole idea. So do you start with someone like a business um, master of business administration? Can you get them into their own business in three weeks? Sure, yeah, yeah. Even without it, yeah. Even without any any business um, degree or anything like that previously, we will help them. These the guys that we've helped. They don't have any business degrees, but we have some experts that work with us that have done a lot of this in the past, and so they they to get you know myself and 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 a few others we helped them with the design of the company of the logo of the the branding the whole the whole business model how it's supposed to be set up you know and bring them into the market so so um with the market analysis you know all of, all of it all of what is required to make a business successful and so so and the one of the first ones that we also did was actually for for ourselves we started a, with Gabby we started a translation company so we translate books and we translate um, we just translated 
um, the ASI, all the ASI uh, abundant living health talks, you know, what are used in all of the all of the evangelistic campaigns. Before the share him talk, you know, the spiritual talk, there's always a little health nugget, right? So all of those we translated into Spanish and into Portuguese, and um, and so forth. And now we're translating with with the Adventist Publishing House in Switzerland books, commentaries for the Great Controversy series, different things like that. So anyway, it's a lot of fun. Now we have, I'm not really a good translator, but I'm good at, at uh, getting projects and getting translators, good translators. And so now we have about 15 translators um, translating all of these kind of things. So uh, it's been a lot of fun. You can advance the work, you know. And, and, and uh, now we're wanting to get into translating, um, translating Ellen White books. Ellen White books into many languages that have had hardly any Ellen White writings um, in their languages. Um, even in German, you know, major books like the book Evangelism, like the book Medical, Medical Ministry, Councils on Health, these kind of things are not translated into German. So... No wonder, you know, we might be struggling with some of these things. <laughs> so, so anyway, so this is this is really um, this is this is a little bit my background for 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 being interested in in figuring out why certain things work and why certain things don't work. Um, so that's why we we call the 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 seminar the top ten mistakes in starting a ministry now. I'm aware that there might be others that might be also part of the top 10, but that's at least according to my, my limited experience. Um, yeah. Okay, so let's go into the first, the first, and I think maybe the biggest mistake that, um, that I think we make in, in many of our, in our missionary in our missionary world, and bef well, I'll just go for it, yeah. Uh, and the, I think this is one of the biggest issues, the biggest mistakes that we have is our balance or unbalance between business and ministry. Actually, I think that we have a problem that we think that making money, that money is evil okay this is what we think often often I, I experienced this over and over again I was in I was in I'm and I'm gonna just share a bunch of stories and and experiences of of certain ministries and what they're doing and why they're doing certain things so we were in um, we were in in Argentina and we were visiting last year we spent we spent we, we visited about 20 countries 20 countries for our honeymoon um, visiting all kinds of lifestyle centers and, and centers of influence all over Latin America, Central and South America and Europe. And we were visiting precisely to find out a whole bunch of things. Why, what are certain, what are people doing? What is working? What is not working? Right. And so one of these centers we went to in, in Argentina, downtown in, in, in Buenos Aires. Okay. It's like 18 million people live there. And they, the conference, actually bought or is renting a location downtown, like 
the most expensive place in the whole city, costing $10,000 a month, dollars, U.S. dollars, in their economy, okay? It's a lot, $10,000, we're not willing to do that, you know? But they're willing to do that, right? So they're getting this $10,000 location, very nice location, to do a center of influence. Why? Because Ted Wilson, and this is what's going on worldwide, Ted Wilson, since 2010, especially 2011, he started pushing for city missions and centers of influence, right? And total member involvement and so forth. And so since then, you know, certain divisions are faster to adopt all of these things and others are a little bit slower. But in South America, especially, you know, the, you know, the division president says, okay, now every union needs to start a center of influence, you know, in the, in their cities and so forth, right? So, so, so this is what's going on. So all the unions and all the conferences, they're like, okay, how do we start a center of influence? And so they go and, and, you know, not having a lot of experience in the, in this, they try to start a center of influence. And what do they think is a center of influence? Well, if you don't spend enough, a lot of time studying into what Ellen White meant with centers of influence, then you might come to a conclusion like a, a you know, a, a place where people come for health talks or something like that. This is, this is the reality. You know, this is what, in many cases, this is what they come up with. Right. And so, and so they say, Oh, this is our ministry. We are doing a center of health education. And so they, and so they have every evening, they have a health talk of some kind of health, right? It's health, it's physical health, mental health, spiritual health, and different things. And they have Bible studies and so forth. And that's all, it's all, it's all, it's all very nice, you know? Um, but the, the problem was when I was, when I was going to visit this place, I was staying with the conference president. And he was telling me, he was telling me, you know, he's a little bit worried because they've been running the center now for three years and, um, and, it's, and it's costing them a lot of money, right? They've been spending just on rent $120,000 a month, uh, a year, right? And, and that's for three years. So $330,000 or $360,000 and Plus, they have workers, you know, and so forth. And they're doing a lot of it uh, is on volunteer time. And so and so they're kind of concerned. And he was telling me that maybe we should do like a fundraising campaign or we should do we should get all the businessmen together and try to try to try to get them to donate more money so that we can continue running this 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 center of influence. Center of influence is God's program. We should do this. Right. And so I'm like, so. um have you have you thought about figuring out a way how to generate income through this center of influence? And he's like, no, no, we haven't uh, we haven't really considered that. And um, and so then we get there and we walk in. And as we walk in, I start talking to the lady that's the manager of the place, and she is telling me everything about what they're doing, and they're doing all these health talks and this and that. And then I see in the side, oh, and she mentions she mentions you know yeah the the issue is that we're a little bit concerned about the money issue, you know. And so then, so then I see in the corner, I see um, a whole bunch of health food products in a, in a, you know, in a nice shelf. And, and I ask her, what is, what are these health food products here for? Oh, this is for the, this is from the, 
from the from from Granix, from the from the Avenist um, health food company that they have a big health food company in in Argentina, right? And these are some of the products that they do, and so we have them here for display so that the people can can uh, can see that we're you know we're affiliated, you know. And so I'm like, what am I going to ask, Terrence? Why don't you sell some of these products, right? Why don't you make a part of it as a kind of a health food, health food ministry, you know, and you, you sell some of these products. And she's like, oh, oh no, we don't sell, we don't sell any of these products. No, because this is a ministry. What we're doing is ministry. We're not in it for business, okay? We're not in it for making money. And I was shocked. You know, you know, I didn't know what to say. I'm like, uh, okay, well. And, uh, and so, the, and the conference president was actually very open to, because he was in a, he had a need, right? And so I'm, I'm telling him, look, what we do, what I've been doing for the last, at least 10 years of my life, is how to do sustainable evangelism, right? How to set up, centers of influence that actually generate an income and therefore can can continue its longevity and not die right away right and so and so he's like well we're just learning you know we're trying to figure out things and so we're open to hear these things so he was open right so that was good but um but at the same time i was you know i just couldn't believe it i'm like is making money evil I thought about it. It's like we put it as if it was something worldly, you know, or as if it was something secular, something that is not spiritual, something that that it kind of makes us feel like we're selfish or 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 you know, just greedy or something like that. This is what this is these are the connotations that we have when when the topic of generating income comes from. Now, I think all of us, we don't have that problem. We're, we're familiar enough with, with self-supporting ministries that we know that we should generate. But we have other problems. Our problems come when we start charging more than what we think it's really worth. Uh-huh. You had a question? What about the income tax when you start generating money? Yeah, what about it? Do you change your status as a... Oh, you mean from a non-profit to a for-profit? Oh, you know that some of the biggest, biggest income-generating organizations are non-profit. Um, with tax exemption, yeah. FIFA, FIFA. I don't know if you know FIFA, but the world, the World Cup for soccer. They make a few billion dollars in profit a year and it's non-profit yeah it's non-profit so there's not a problem you know it, as long as it's considered as a beneficiary program for the community um so you have to yeah there's 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 ways of of doing it so anyway so this is one of the one of the major things oh, oh before i get to that that quote I, I thought when I was, when I was growing up, when I was a child, I actually had my own little business. I started a, a moped company 
just fixing fixing little motorcycles and making them faster than what they're supposed to be. <laughs> this was before, you know, before I was into all of this. So, so you know, I was doing that. I would, I would paint them. I would paint them very nice, make them this light blue, metallic light blue, and then, and then have like chrome and everything. And then I would sell it. I would make, I would, I would invest about $100 for it and then, in, and then sell it for about $500. And so this is how I actually got into buying my drum set. For those that know me, I was I used to be into all of that. So, so I was into this whole business thing, but then when I got converted, I thought my 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 tendency, my natural tendency to 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 make money and so forth, that's from the devil. Now that's a worldly trait that I have. It's a, it's a worldly tendency. So I need to get rid of all of that, and just and just live by faith. You know. No income, just faith. Right? And so when we started a project in Honduras, the way we lived, I'm telling you, the way we lived was how? Asking donations from people? No, that was considered a lack of faith. Yeah, no, no donations, no income generation. We were living by faith, you know, prayer and faith. And we were just getting on our knees at the end of the month and just hoping that there was enough money in the account for us to buy the food for all the missionaries there. And it was amazing. Actually, the first year that we were there, it was amazing. We had two missionaries, then we had five missionaries, then we had seven, then twelve. And every time, at the end of the month, we had exactly proportionately to the amount of missionaries that we had, we had anonymously received donations into our bank account. And we didn't know who it was from. I mean, amazing, right? God just did, took care of us. And, and, and we thought, wow, this is an amazing program, right? This is like living by faith. I mean, we were telling stories, you know. And it was just a miracle after miracle. Every month was a miracle. And so we had this experience. But at the same time, as, as God, this is, is God, He's so merciful, you know. If we don't understand something, and we just go forward. God is going to teach us in the process, right? And so then God taught us. He, he taught us a system, a, a, a way, the way He wants us to actually live by faith. And what was the way He wants us to live by faith? I realized, and this was the, the image that I got. It's like, I realized that I was just down here opening my mouth and asking for God to drop down the beans from heaven so that I could eat them, right? And I was just you know, enjoying, you know, like catching these beans, you know what I mean? And, and, and I, was, I was living that, that, that idea. But then the longer I read the Bible and Spirit of Prophecy, I started realizing, oh, what is actually the ideal that God wants for me? How does God want to allow us to experience faith Really, not by dropping beans from heaven, but by doing what the children say, you know, by doing what? Yeah, you got to plant some seeds, right? And then it grows, and God produces the growth, right? It makes makes the the fruit come out of the ground through with together in cooperation with our efforts of 
developing the, the fruit, right? And then we can pick the fruit and we thank God for, for the fruit, right? And so it's much more of an agricultural model. It's much more of a, not just miraculous boosh type of, type of program, but it's much more a, a, a cooperation, right? God giving the blessing and, and He wants us to, to, to surrender our wills. He wants us to work together with Him, right? And so I realized that, that, uh, fundraising and even income generation is not a lack of faith. It's not a lack of faith. It's actually a cause of faith is to ask for donations, not for oneself, but for the work of God to go forward and to involve other people, donors, to become part of the program, right? To be, to get part of the blessing. And then income generation is another level. So that's when we got into industries and the tamarind plantation and, and processing fruit and, 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 and so forth to be able to, to start to realize that the self-supporting idea is actually part of the faith concept. Yeah. But I didn't know that. And so when I, when I, I thought making money, man, that's a worldly thing, you know, that's a worldly thing. And so when I read this quote, I'm telling you, it shocked me like no other quote I think I've ever read. It says, The desire to accumulate wealth is an original affection of our nature implanted there by the devil himself. That's what I thought. That's what I thought. What does it say? Implanted there by our Heavenly Father for what? For noble ends. So, so this is really important. It's not for us to just live a rich and, you know, fancy life. That's not the idea. But we have so mixed the two that when we're rich, we immediately change our lifestyle that we suddenly think now being rich is a bad thing. Have you ever heard of a missionary, a rich being, a, a missionary that's rich? <laughs> no, we pride ourselves of being poor. poor right? It's like, yeah, yeah, I'm a missionary. You know what that means? I mean, I, I'm, I know how to live off of nothing. nothing. That's right. See, we, we still have this idea in our minds, okay? We have this, we're proud of actually being poor, right? And so, and so this is a really interesting concept, right? It's not as, it's not, I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about living a unsacrificial life. No. I'm talking about the desire to accumulate wealth is actually a gift from God. In the whole Old Testament, we know that this is true, right? If we do God's will, He will prosper us, right? That we know from Ellen White, Ministry of Healing, page 183, and Ministry of Healing, page 283. And the success of that in Christ Object Lessons, page 288 and 290, all tell us the story that Israel was going to be the, the most prosperous nation in the world. The most healthy nation in the world and the most prosperous nation in the world. They would be the richest people on the planet. Actually, that was their testimony. They were to be the head, according to Deuteronomy 28, verse 
13, right? They were not to be the tail. They were to be the head, not the tail. Only above, not beneath. Only lenders and not borrowers, right? And so that was part of the concept. We read yesterday, Joshua. Joshua, what was it? 1 verse 5, I think. If you do my will, then I will prosper you, right? That was the idea. And so the accumulation of wealth was not a negative thing. It was a good thing. By the way, all the patriarchs were really rich, right? The Bible doesn't say they were just rich. They said they were very rich. <laughs> okay, Job, the richest man in the whole then known world, right? So, so this was not a problem. The problem would have been if they were just using it for themselves. God says, implanted there, they're implanted in our nature for noble ends. For noble ends. And in the context of this quote, it mentions the noble ends of advancing the gospel. That's the noble end. And so that's what God actually gives us. The desire to accumulate wealth is actually for the advancement of the work of God. So this was just such a paradigm shift. I don't know. I don't know about you, but it changed my concept of, of how we're supposed to be doing mission work. The problem is that we have a, a heritage that, and I wondered, you know, why, where did this come from that I think making money is a bad thing? Being rich is a bad thing. Where, where does this come from? And, and I studied into history and I realized something. It's actually, it's actually a heritage that we've gotten from, you know, from the medieval time period. From the medieval time period of how they interpreted the Bible and how they uh, did certain things. So the Catholic Church, actually, in the medieval time period, they were the ones who changed the concept of money, how we look at money. And what they did was they made it to seem to be more spiritual if you're poor. And the reason why they did that, yeah, so that everybody will give their money to them, right? And, and, it, and it worked extremely well, all right? The, what they did was they made, they made the idea, it is, it is virtuous to be humble, and is vir I mean, to be, to be poor. Humility was part of poverty, and so even in, in, in Spanish, if you say, uh, a humble, a humble family, it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that they're character-wise humble. It means that they're poor, right? And so, and so, um, this concept was developed. And so they, they actually had the highest ranking people, the most spiritual people, they would have make a vow of, yeah, Luther, all the monks, all the nuns had a vow of poverty, right? And so that was considered the highest state. Even Prince, Pope Francis has a vow of poverty. He made a vow of poverty. Now, you know, the house that he's living in doesn't... Anyway, let's not, let's not talk about that. But, 
but 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 that was the idea. Actually, the 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 concept was if you if you they they created a few a number of interesting systems. The system of indulgence, you know the system of indulgence, right? Is if you pay money, then then your your grandparent or whoever has died already will burn a week less if you pay a hundred dollars. You know, it's a week less of purgatory, right? So they burn less, so you know. So for the love of your grandfather or grandmother or mother or father that has passed away, you they poor people would use all the money that they have left to give to the church to be able to try to save their parents from burning in in purgatory for a long time. So the invention of purgatory is actually, I think, the most genius, diabolic business model I've ever seen in my life. Actually, it's a business model, right? It really works. <laughs> it really works, unfortunately. For in ignorant with ignorant people, it works. The other thing, the other business model that is especially interesting to our group of people is they the business model of taking away physiology out of the knowledge of the common folk they took physiology out of classes out of everything so nobody knew what was going on in their bodies and so because nobody knew what was going on where would the people go to get cured they would not go to the doctor they would go to the priests that's right actually in Spanish and in Portuguese, you will still re notice that because the word for priest is cura. Cura. We're going to go to the cura. Cura means healer. It comes from curation, right? To cure, right? So the cura, we're going to go to the cura and he was going to heal you. That was the whole idea. This is in Latin America, right? Now, today, nobody thinks of that because there's pharmacies and so forth. That's where we go to, right? But, 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 but that was the idea during the medieval time period and even past the medieval time period to some extent. And so people would go to the, to the, to the priest. And what would he say? You have a, you have a stomach ache? They didn't know they had, you had, uh, uh, large intestines and, and so forth. They had no idea. It's just hurting here, you know? It's like, what do I do, right? And then, what does the what does the priest say? Well, you know, you got some sins here, you know. So, 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 pay fifty dollars, do five Ave Marias, and then your sin will be forgiven. Okay, and then you can go. Yeah, of course, right. So, so, so this is this is a big money business, right? And so the first thing, by the way, Luther was the one who started analyzing all this stuff. And he was the one who decided everybody is deceived. And so the first thing he did was to translate the Bible, right, into German, into the local language, for people to be able to see what is really being said, so to think for themselves and to, and to start reasoning from cause to effect. And they started, they started seeing all of these things. And then the next thing he did was he implemented physiology back in the classroom. Besides the Bible, physiology. And it immediately killed the business. Uh, okay. Really? 
really. And not only that, but he actually, he changed the way they looked at marriage, the way they looked at sex, all of these kind of things. They were, priests were not allowed to get married, right? Still not, right? And why? Because they thought that, 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 uh, sexual relations and so forth are sinful, right? They have some kind of a, you know, and so they put all of these connotations. And, and Luther was so bold because he read the Bible. He's like, this is not biblical at all. And so he changed. So he got married to a nun, right? And, and destroyed that idea, right? For the, for the Catholic Church. And then also he was the one who then based on his study of the Bible, he realized that the concept of Poverty and the concept of money was completely wrong, wrongly presented by the church. And so he was the one who first turned it around and said, actually, money is a good thing. Okay, money is actually a God-given talent that we should use and we should administrate to advance the cause of God. He was the first one to really turn this around. And so based on that Protestant movement, you know what happened with all the church, with with all the countries that were predominantly Protestant? They prospered, yeah. Suddenly they were all the thinkers, all the innovators, all the people that were reading the Bibles for themselves. They started being able to think outside of the box, outside of the tradition. So all these people started innovating. They started generating and they thought business was not a bad thing. And so therefore they started creating, starting their own companies, starting their own income, creating new products, new services and so forth. And so they started prospering. So if you look on a map, you can look at a world map. You see all the predominantly uh, Protestant countries, Germany, all of the northern, you know, Western European countries, Norway, Sweden, Finland, uh, Holland, Denmark, and so forth. All of them, America of all, pla- of all places, right, are the most prosperous countries. It's very interesting. And if you look on the other side, all the Catholic, predominantly Catholic countries, what happened to those? The church is rich, but the country is? Yeah, you look at it. It's, it's, it's a fact, right? You can look at the, at the, at the economic, econo- econ- economy of, the, of every country in Central America and Latin America. Most countries, even in Southern European countries and so forth, they will tendentially be less prosperous because of the Catholic influence. Interesting, huh? Very interesting. So this, there's books, there's whole books written about this topic. So, so this is a, it's a common, commonly known fact, um, that the paradigm in which people grow up, the success will determine, is determined by, by that paradigm. So just a few texts, okay? There's tons of them uh, talking about prosperity. If you read, if you just do a, a Bible search on prosperity, it's, it's, it's phenomenal what you see, okay? But just a few, a few verses here. Proverbs 22, 4. By humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. Yeah. It's by, interesting, huh? By humility and fear of the Lord are riches, right? And honor and life. 
The generous soul, verses Proverbs 11, 25, the generous soul will be made rich and will, and he who waters will also be watered. <clears throat> That's the idea of, of if you give, you will receive more in return, right? Always. So, so this is what I realized, that mission work, actually, we've been living on these models here, right? Mostly. These models. And I, and I, I told you the story. I went from this way of looking at it, from prayer. I went to fundraising, and then I realized, oh, Ellen White talks about self-sustainability. And then I realized, Ellen White actually talks about profitability. Our ministries should be very profitable. So profitable, this is the coolest thing. Ellen White says that our sanitariums, for instance, should make so much profit to do what? You know what? To help other, other people start their own ministry. To help others start another sanitarium. So the factor of duplication is actually accounted for in Ellen White's concept of sustainability. It's profitability. It's so much profit that you can make out of one sanitarium, you can start another sanitarium. And then both of those sanitariums can start another sanitarium. And then both of all four of those sanitariums can start another sanitarium. If we had done this from the beginning, where would we be today? <clears throat> we will be the head. That's right. Amazing, huh? So we, but what, what do we do? We generate, we're not in this model. We're not in the profitability model. We're, we're, <laughs> all of these are powered by prayer, right? But, but we are actually in the sustainability model. We are trying to do our best to, when we make a bread, we sell it for what it costs us to make that bread. And so they give us exactly the cost for that bread. And that with that money, what do we do? We make one more bread. That's right. And this is actually, and I was just teaching this class at, uh, at the, in the business course, the key, the magic ingredient, I, I call it, the magic ingredient that makes from one bread be able to turn into 5,000 loaves of bread. What is the magic ingredient? It's profit. It's profit. It's actually selling the, 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 the piece of bread for enough money that you can replace that piece of bread and make a second one. That's right. So our profit model needs to at least duplicate in a way. Right? This is actually the magical ingredient that the world has understood that we have not understood. The magical ingredient, profit. Why in the world does McDonald's have 10 times more restaurants worldwide than all of our, all of our ministries, all of our churches, all of our restaurants combined. 
have not even 10% of the amount of restaurants that just McDonald's has. Why is that? Yeah, it's because they, they understand the idea of duplication. We don't have time to go through all of this, but Ellen White actually mentions this in when she's talking about the beehive in San Francisco. If you've, if you've studied about the beehive in San Francisco, as part of the beehive, one of the bees in San Francisco was a vegetarian restaurant right on Market Street that was open six days of the week and entirely closed on Sabbath. Remember that? And she says that that is doing a great work. <laughs> Praise the Lord. But, she says, that work needs to be greatly extended. She says, we should have other similar restaurants to that one. It's like franchise. The word franchise did not exist during Ellen White's time. Right? McDonald's didn't even exist. They were the first ones to start a franchise, actually. Franchise, you know what I mean? It's a chain, right? Duplicating the, the, the program. She says, we should have other similar ones to that one of Market Street, to that restaurant, in other parts of the same city. She says, of the same city of, of San Francisco and in Oakland, she says. I mean, it's like, it's like the, the rudiments of what she's talking about is to franchise that restaurant make it so well structured and you duplicate it and you can just go bah, 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 all over the world. Just like what she says for sanitarium work that one should be able to start another one, right? And those should be able to start another one and all four should be able to start four more, right? Amazing, right? And so God actually has given us the insight on what to do here but somehow this Catholic heritage inside of us is not allowing us to progress the way actually the world progresses. Ellen White makes this statement that we, the world, the, the, from, from, from Luke, Luke 16, the people of this world are wiser in this generation than the children of light. And she says precisely in the context of the, the desire to accumulate wealth, it's in that context that she mentions this, that we are completely missing that sense of, of profitability and using every, every, um, how do you say, every habit, she says, worldly people bend every habit, every energy, every conversation, every second, every moment, they bend it, to achieve that one desired objective to, 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 to be rich. And she says, for no reason. They don't even know why they're trying to be rich. And she says, how much more do we have a purpose for why we need to be rich? Why we need to have all this money? Not, and we need to take it away from them, actually, you know? We should get it from them and use it for the work of God. Yeah. And so, and so we have, we need to move, I believe this is our next step in self-supporting work. Our next step is moving from self-sustainability and fundraising, you know, maybe somewhere here, you know, <laughs> to move them into, into profitability. That's actually the program I believe that, that God is asking us to do at this time. By the way, it was not just at this time that God asked us to do this. But it was a hundred 
and about 115 years ago, right at the change of the century, in 1901, the General Conference had a meeting, 1901, the reorganization of the entire church, right? You remember? And they decided to create the whole system of four, foreign missions, excuse me, foreign missions with the, 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 at least the concept of divisions and union and so forth that, that we were entering into Africa and into Europe and into South America was just during that time. They were opening up to the idea of going worldwide. And right during that time, the church, the church's um, excitement for missions was actually at its low point. Did you know that? Because in the beginning, everybody wanted to work for God, but they didn't have a jobs. And so, and so everybody was there trying to do, and it was the highest privilege to be able to work for God, to be able to work for the church. Uh, but as the pioneers started, started passing away and so forth, the, min, the, the mission spirit and the, the original purpose also started floundering. And so, and so people started going down. And right in 19, I think it was 1902, Ellen White makes a statement. She says, not one in a hundred among us is doing anything beyond engaging in common worldly enterprises. Not one in a hundred among... Some of you have read the statement. Not one in a hundred... It's right in 1902. It's right in this context. Not one in a hundred among us is doing anything beyond engaging in common worldly enterprises. The biggest problem was people were not willing to work for the church anymore. Now the whole the general conference is calling for all church members to get involved in missions and nobody is interested in doing that. Why? What are they engaging in? They're, they're engaging in common worldly enterprises. Yeah, that was the situation. And the quote continues saying, saying, that if, if men were awake to their duty, she says, not, they're not half awake to the souls, to the worth of the souls for whom Christ has died. She says, there would be thousands where there is one today proclaiming the gospel in heathen lands. Thousands. There will be thousands where there is one today proclaiming the gospel in heathen lands. So the problem is that 99% of the Adventist church at that time, 1902, 1902-1903, everybody was engaging in common worldly enterprises. And so as a solution, and this is the key, and I'm gonna, we're going to talk shortly about Madison here, the key, the solution to this problem that everybody was working in common worldly enterprises and not in enterprises that were aiding the church. You know when you're working for a worldly company, they have a mission statement, right? Every company has a mission statement. They have a mission that they're trying to accomplish. If you're working for them, then what is your mission? As their mission, right? You're advancing their mission. And that is what 40 hours a week at least, it doesn't allow us to advance God's mission, right? So that is a really, a real separation. And so God was determined to change that around. And that's why God called Madison into life. Yeah. I think some may get to those situations with the mindset that they're going to use that money to further God's, God's mission. And I think that's, that's, that, that may be okay. 
to, I think, you know, there's, there's, there's different levels of involvement, right? And I think to work in a worldly company and to make money and to give that to the church, that's, I think that's a good model. Um, but I do believe that in the long run, when we're talking about ideals, in the long run, God would ideally have even those people work in their own companies or in Adventist-owned companies, not you know, not everybody needs to work in a typical ministry, you know, but in Adventist owned companies that can actually use their, their, their companies to advance the gospel through their, through their company with their customers, right? Not get fired for sharing the gospel with the customer, right? There's a difference, right? So there's a more ideal and a less ideal. But that doesn't mean that God can call people to work in a worldly company. That's part of it, right? That's one step. But I would say in the most ideal situation, we would be growing into, into, that, into that plan. So this is actually the contribution, the main contribution of Madison for the world church. Yeah? Because two years after she mentioned that, that quote, that 99% are working just in common worldly enterprises, then she comes and says, let's start Madison. Madison, there's a lot of misconceived ideas about Madison. Um, Madison, if you, if you read God's Beautiful Farm, it, it gives a very nice mission-focused um, idea, uh, description of Madison. But I think, I think even, even that book, even though I really like it, um, is affected by this, this Catholic heritage of not wanting to, to really talk about the business part of Madison. And so we're going to just, I'm going to just show you a little bit more of the business part of Madison, okay? Very, very amazing. Madison had up to 450 students. Uh, in the 1940s, 1950s as well, um, 450 students. Not one of them was allowed to even pay tuition. Even if they could, they were not allowed to pay tuition. And the main reason for this was what? Uh huh. Yeah, to to actually teach them how to, if it was just to build up the institution, then tuition would work. But it wasn't for that. It was for, it was for teaching the students. Uh-huh. 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 And the most important thing, this is what we, we have a lot of ideas about the blueprint, but, but the, the main idea of Practical work. There's two main ideas on practical work. And this is very interesting. We have the, the practical work is not just to learn how to be practical, but it's actually how to, to use that skill is to teach a skill that's on one side, but is how to use that skill to, to generate income. Right, is actually to make it profitable. So they actually taught those two aspects for this, and they had, they actually had, 
over 50 businesses on campus working simultaneously. Can you believe that? 50 businesses. Imagine if Wildwood had 50 businesses run simultaneously on campus. Amazing. 27 of them were run by students. That is a different. That is teaching people actually how to do entrepreneurship, how to, how to start and generate their own company, their own business on all kinds of levels, all kinds of ways, with all of their practical skills. We'll see in a moment what kind of businesses they started. They had, yeah, beds, 100, 100 bed sanitarium. Their biggest business that they started and that students helped the institution start together with the teachers, with nutrition teachers, chemistry teachers, they started Madison Foods that were distributed in 48 states in America, their products. They invented all the products that we have today of soy products. Madison invented all of these products, pretty much all of them, all the major ones, uh, soy coffee, soy meat, soy milk, soy everything, right? They invented all of those products and, and actually went through and distributed all of them. And this is what generated, and it was the students that created new products and so forth. They were part of this, this process. And it was one of these products and so forth that they then helped get into the market and so forth that, that paid their tuition. So immediately they learned how to develop business, right? They had dairy farms, broom factories on campus. They had stores, restaurants. They had many different kinds of crops and, and a number of other things. They had a lot of agriculture going on. And so they had, yeah, they became famous, right? And Ellen White says, says something here. Various industries should be carried on in our schools. This industrial instruction given should include the keeping of accounts, accounting, okay? That's business money management, right? Carpentry, and they had all of this at, at Madison, okay? Carpentry, and all that is comprehended in farming, every, the whole shebang. Many of the, of the students had their own crops. They all had to learn at least two trades, two ways on how to generate their own income how the, their own businesses, two, two, two types of business models they had to learn. Preparation should be made for the teaching of blacksmithing. Amazing. Painting, painters, shoemaking. And for the cooking, baking, and washing, mending, typewriting, and printing. I mean, amazing, right? I mean, these guys did not sit on their butts, right? No, it was it was... Very, very, very practical. But all of these were considered trades. And they were, and this is, we're need, we need to think this is the southern United States in 1900, which means this was the third world country. At that time, this was the third world country. It wasn't this highly uh, systematized and you have to get a four-year degree to, to become a carpenter, you know. That was not the idea. You needed to get the skill, and then you could set up your business. And today, you have to get a license for all this other stuff. You know, and even in the States, it's more free. It's much more open than in many in European countries. It's much more difficult to do this. 
But, but here, many of these things are still possible. You can't become a painter without having to go uh, to a painting academy, you know? You, 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 can, you, can, you can become a painter. You, you, if you know how to paint, you can get jobs. You can do it, right? Yeah, so they, this is what they did. But they taught them how to make income, how to become a painter, start their own business, and run with that. Okay, very amazing. This, here's some of the pictures. Huh? They had many crops, corn crops, all kinds of crops. Dairy farm, they, had, they actually had uh, a whole cow farm. They had a chicken farm, all kinds of, all kinds of things. Orchards, printing press, carpentry shop, and some in class, you know. <laughs> factory, the food factory, here the soy, Big Franks, you know, from the 1900s. Yeah, yeah. this is the chemistry lab. Amazing, amazing what they did. The bakery, they had, a, they had their own bakery. Shops. Here's a bunch of the food products that they had, all the Madison cereals and all kinds of things. Yeah. So they started hundreds of organizations, companies out of Madison, right? 50 institutions within the first few years. Their graduates that left, they all were entrepreneurs. They all had two main things. Taught business and accounting, research. They started ASI, right? And this is what Ellen White says. This is a very interesting point. The school at Madison not only educates in a knowledge of scriptures, but it gives a practical training that fits the student to go forth as a, and these are the two aspects that Madison majored in, as self-supporting missionaries to the field to which he is called. Two things. They taught them how to be self-supporting and they taught them how to be missionaries. That was the main focus. How to be self-supporting. Self-supporting. This is, this is, it's so important that Ellen White actually elevates this point more than any other point. This, he, she says, they have been learning to become self-supporting and a training more important than this they could not receive. The most important thing that Madison taught their students was how to be self-supporting. Now, what does self-supporting mean in the 1900s? It actually, it's the, it's the answer. Remember, the answer to everybody world, working in common worldly enterprises. So it actually means self to support themselves financially, right? That's what it means. It's actually self-employment. It's, it's, or one of the connotations of self-supporting means to be self-employed, to be able to generate your own income not working for the world. That was actually the idea. Yeah. So this was their most important thing. And if they had done this, and if they did this, Ellen White says, and if the other schools would do this, the world would, uh, the, 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 oops, where is this? Am I being so, uh, so exciting? So exciting? Oh, I started like this? Okay. Anyway, now let's continue here. Let's not get distracted here.
it's kind of awkward here. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, now I look a little bit more professional. Here's, here's what it says. This is what it says. The class of education given at Madison School is such as will be accounted a great treasure of value to those who take up missionary work in foreign fields. Man, where's the quote? Did I put it? Yes, here. If many more in other schools were receiving a similar training, we as a people would be a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. The messages would be quick, the message would be quickly carried to every country and souls now in darkness would be brought to the light. Amazing. So they were self-supporting, but not just self-supporting, they were also missionaries. They used their restaurants, their health food stores, their products, everything they used to advance the gospel. And because they used it to reach their customers, that's why it would have been so successful. Unfortunately, we have lost kind of this aspect of the blueprint, right? We talk about everything else. We do talk about a lot about all these other aspects. And I believe that we have missed um, this aspect. It's so important. Business training, entrepreneurship is so important that Ellen White makes this comment. All our denominational colleges and training schools should make provision to give their students two things. Education essential for evangelists and for Christian businessmen. Wow, isn't that crazy? Every college, she says, all our denominational colleges and training schools should teach them these two things. So we have really, we've, we've put business on the back burner, right? We, we think it's so worldly. And everybody that goes and studies business, I've, I've experienced this. Everybody that, 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 I have a friend, he studied, he studied theology. And after theology, he went to study business. And everybody thought, this man is apostatized. Yeah. They all thought, no, the, the best thing that you can do, you know, if you want to work for God, Really, the only way to work for God is to be a pastor. Well, that was the idea. That has been the idea in many minds. You know. Or to become a foreign missionary somewhere out in the boonies fighting against crocodiles, right? That, that's the other side, right? But really, that's the only option, right? So, okay. That's it. That's the, that's the first and most important uh, uh, point of the 10 points. The other ones are a little bit shorter, but this is the heaviest one, okay? So that was the first hour. Maybe we should, we'll take a break. I have a question. Yeah. Real quick, how do you, when you talk about profitability, how do you, like, where's the line where you start to think, okay, I'm not taking advantage of people for profit? Like, where's the line? Oh, that's a good question. Okay, where is the line between when you're trying to, when you're making wanting to make profit between profitability and taking advantage of people. Um, yeah, that's a, a good question. I would say most, most of the time we try to make, make our profit model based on whatever it costs us to make the profit, uh, to make the product. And then we put a little margin on top uh, to try to make a profit. The problem is this, that we put 
we don't put everything into what it actually costs to make a profit. You know, the problem is we just put enough to make us feel comfortable, but we don't include all the hidden costs and all the hidden costs. Correct. Depreciation of equipment, depreciation of of um, of buildings. We we only account for stipends. We don't account for for salaries, right? Things like this, right? And and then and then all disasters. You know, Google and and Coca Cola. You know, Coca Cola is more famous. Um, Coca Cola brand is more famous than Jesus Christ worldwide. More people know Coca Cola than Jesus Christ. You know that? Well, it's because of they've understood something. They know the they have the profit model, right? This this magical ingredient, and they account for every unforeseen circumstance. They put it as part of the cost, so that if uh, if there's a leaking building, a leaking roof, or something in a lifestyle center, they would have the money to be able to immediately build a new roof, right? We then are stuck, and many ministries, that's when they fall and they actually die, right? Many ministries die because of things like this, and and because they don't have uh, good friends on the other side, you know, that like little Debbie or somebody that can that can donate, you know, some money. You know what I mean? Like this is this is this is really the reality, you know, and so. So I would, I would say, usually it's based on the perception of the people, what people are willing to pay, not so much what it actually costs us to pay. And so this is how, you know, how much does it cost Coca-Cola to make a, a, a bottle, a thing of Coca-Cola? It doesn't, maybe five cents, you know, uh, maybe ten, you know. But then they sell it for one dollar and something, right? And so, so the profit model is like, a thousand percent, right? And we're always, we're not even good, we're not even happy with making, making 100% profit margin. And, and because of that, then we get stuck because, because all of the hidden costs come up to the, to the full profit margin that we theoretically have. But then we're, but then, but then we're stuck. We cannot do any reinvestments. Which ministry have you heard of has an R&D um, department? R&D, you know R&D? Research and development, right? Which ministry has an R&D department? To do innovation, which is what we're supposed to be doing. All of our ministries, right? God has given us the, the, the creator's code, you know, the creator's, uh, the ability to create, to innovate. This is a creation, this is a, a, a concept based on, on our belief of God being the creator of the universe. And we do not take advantage of it. This is part of the creation. It's part of the first angel's message, you know. So we need to, we need to, I, I think we put it way too low. And this is why we're, we get stuck, you know, in trying to, in trying to move forward. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.